Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today we're talking about Babylon, last year's film from Damien Giselle that was set in the early years of Hollywood. And my guest is production sound mixer Steve Morrow. Steve, always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Now, let's put a quick warning out there for listeners. Today's conversation may contain spoilers for the film. Go check it out and then come join us. So, Steve, you've been a regular guest on the show. The first thing we talked about was La La Land that you had done with Damien back in, gosh, I can't remember how many years it's been now. Oh, it feels like a day. It feels like a a millennia ago. So (laughs) pre-pandemic, probably 2017, maybe 2018, somewhere in there. But is this your first time coming back with him since La La Land? That's right. Yeah, he he did um, First Man in between La La Land and Babylon. Uh, I was in Atlanta doing The Front Runner with Jason Reitman. That could be the issue with these large scale films in which he does getting out of sync with this particular director. You're not able to catch all of their work because they're on a different schedule between the prep and such. Exactly. I mean, as you know, just getting a movie made is is a miracle in itself. I mean, you know, not a true miracle, but, you know, get the actor's availability, get the the budget, the permitting, the sets, all your everybody set up. I mean, it's just like by the time you're actually shooting the movie, which is where I come in, so many hoops have been jumped over for you know, years to decades, you know, so it's it's one of those things that were, yeah, if anything gets out of sync, it, it just happens. Now, and you've done a couple of big films in between on your own as well. What was it like then coming back, working with Damien again? Like what was different or the same this time as, as La La Land? The big difference you have anytime you repeat with a crew or a director is that the shorthand um, changes. You, know, you you understand what they're looking for. You understand what you're getting into. So it's, you know, there's no longer, you know, on any film, it takes a, a few days to a few weeks to to learn how the director communicates or, or what their expectations are, what will make them happy or upset or anything. So, you know, with that in mind, anytime you can repeat with a director, that is already, or an actor even, that's, um, that shorthand's already there. That's where it, you know, makes it easier because then they're also anybody that you hire for the first time for anything, even like, you know, home construction, it's, you don't know who this person is until they start working. But if you get through an entire project with them, everything turned out great. The next time they hire you, it's just a no brainer. You know, there's none of that. Do they know what they're doing? Am I, you know, in good hands kind of thing. So that's always the pleasure of, of repeat you know, directors for me anyway, is that you just get to to work with people who already appreciate you. That's why you're back again. Give me a sense though, with Babylon compared to La La Land, both of them have a lot of really large set pieces. Um, La La Land had the sort of musical elements to a lot of that, that is present, but not as present in, in Babylon. Was there anything different about the size of that and like the role specifically of production sound? Babylon was probably three to four times the budget of La La Land. Um, The schedule, La La Land was, I want to say 35-ish days, and Babylon was 78. Wow. Okay. That's huge. I mean, but you can see it in the movie. You know, it's it's an epic in scale movie. You know, you have a thousand extras running at each other in a field in Simi Valley, you know. And just to pull that off, 
you know, you also have two to 300 crew members plus, you know, multiple catering and bathrooms for everybody and shelter for everybody because it's 110 degrees. And, you know, the scale was much bigger. But when it comes down to the music, you know, La La Land was, was a true musical. They'd sing and, and dance their dialogue from time to time, whereas Babylon had a ton of music in it. Uh, because there was always bands, there was an orchestra in that field with a thousand people, there was a, a band at every party, there was something playing at every party because it was the time in the, the world where there weren't recordings, there weren't, you know, there is no jukebox. So if you're going to have music, it's got to be people doing it. So the complexity doesn't change much in the in the workflow other than just the size of it. So, you know, it's just as complex to have a band on stage miming to a playback track so you can record the dialogue in the foreground as it is to recording vocals live with the the music uh being played back in their ears same theory i mean when we look at a movie like a, a star is born that i did where we recorded all the vocals live you know that was still playback of the instrumental everything that was recorded in the recording studio was playback and so they had it in their ears but the vocals were live and then you just treat the vocals as if it's dialogue, you know, because that's what it is. Even though it's being sung, the idea is the same. You just have to give them their cues in their ears. So that was kind of, you know, it's a very similar process in both movies uh, other than, you know, La La Land was a, a down and dirty, scrappy, you know, indie movie that nobody's nobody likes musicals. You know, like, are we making a movie that anybody's even going to like to now every third movie is a musical you know, and some are done really well and some are just like, oof, boy, was swinging a miss. But uh, that being said, uh, Babylon, you know, it's it was very much a music musical movie in my head. I treated it as a musical, even though nobody saying saying any dialogue or saying, you know, any of that. But we still had uh, music and dialogue at the same time. So, Steve, you bring up a point that I hadn't given much thought to, but that is, yes, there's always a band in these scenes. Is there ever a time where there are musicians playing live? Because I can see that would get in the way of everything else you're filming. And you're going to get better sound and a better mix by doing that in a studio later. But again, you might play some music to set the tone in a room out of right. speakers. But the musicians yeah. themselves are there, but not actually played. That, that would be typical, I would think. There's two ways of, of looking at it. And it's always a money thing. Um, the bands that we had playing in the room are actually the band members that recorded the music so they know their parts like when you had the one guy come off stage and he had the two saxophones coming out and he was playing it both that may have seemed you know like uh, unbelievable or, or strange or whatever but he actually does that that's him playing it and that's how that song was recorded as a professional touring musician now what happens is you pay them all that money to record the music and then when they're on set essentially they're extras but if you have them play the the instruments out live they become AFM musicians that are getting, you know, overtime and triple time and for playing music and how many times you're going to play it. And, you know, so it's all becomes, you know, a money clock kind of thing. I mean, we did on uh, Maestro, which is the Leonard Bernstein biopic that's coming out, I think around Thanksgiving or Christmas this year, we did have live uh, music and live orchestras and live choirs. But, you know, there's a stopwatch you, every time they start singing or playing or, you know, you, you time it out so that you know how much money you're spending because it could be um, it can it can compound very quickly. So the movie was basically playback, but Ladyface song where she sings at the party, 
uh, for your younger listeners, it's My Girl's Pussy is the song title. When she sings that, she's singing live. We have Justin Horowitz offstage playing a digital piano. So he's playing along with her pace. Because if you pre-record something like that, um, just like we did in La La Land for Emma Stone's audition song, Justin played along with the actor so the actor could take their uh, dramatic beats and moments. Uh, Lady Faye would sing live along with Justin playing. Justin's playing of the piano would go into Lady Faye's ear. So we would take a feed of his piano, put it in her ear for an earpiece, and we'd also put it in the rest of the band for their instruments because they're also playing, but they're not playing live, and the track hasn't been created in the sense that since we're timing it based off of her performance, the band has to pick up their cues based on what Justin is playing on a piano, which sounds complicated for us non-musicians. It, it, I just My head explodes and goes, well, how does the guy on the saxophone know that he's playing because you're playing it on a piano, you know, but they do. And, and so that's kind of those fun moments where you, you know, everybody gets an earpiece, Justin has his piano, he puts on headphones, he's watching the scene, he's playing along with her and she's singing and it sounds amazing and, and it's real. And those are the things that I think, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't do not easily. And now we can do it. We do it all the time because it's more dramatic and it allows the actors to act as opposed to pre-recording something in a studio three months earlier and then just playing it back on set and saying, you know, your character hasn't changed in three months, even though we all know they do. Very interesting. The amount of work it takes to make it seem natural and real where all the elements can come together. But again, that is the the magic of what we do here. And it's no different for sound than it is for uh, any other aspect of the movie. Like I said, like 20 years ago, that would have been near impossible uh, with technology, you know, comes even more complex setups and, and ways of doing things. And it's the same in camera. It's the same in lighting grip. Everything has new technology attached to it. And some of it makes our jobs incredibly easy. And some of it makes it like, oh, now we can do 10 times the work that we did 20 years ago because it's possible. They all have its the pluses and minuses, but it is a fun experience to be able to set something like that up and have it succeed so well. Now, I want to follow that same chain of thought to talk about one of the major set pieces of the movie, not the opening of the film, because that has to deal with the elephant. But when they come into the party scene, it's a massive ongoing shot with multiple things happening. We meet most of our primary actors. But again, lots of sound, lots of elements. While sound is part of it, everybody's got a court. It's like a circus. What's going on here? Intentionally so. But I also imagine for production, much of the same feeling and trying to get that done. But tell us more about that. Yeah, it's one massive shot that we split up into five shots and the cuts are hidden in the whip pans um, and we shot it over a five day period. So we were having a basically a blowout party for five days straight. First day was going to be that big wide crane shot from the, you know, it's actually spider cam, a camera on a, on a cable that runs down that's kind of automated so that it can repeat the move every time runs down all the way into the into the trumpet and then turns and sees them fight and turns back to the trumpet and then we do a whip pan when somebody throws a chair or whatever it is so then then that's where the cut is you know that was the lobby of the ace motel ace hotel sorry downtown los angeles and they did an incredible job dressing it like it's a mansion and for that as chaotic as that is the first shot we could play out loud through speakers easy enough nobody's talking the second shot when I believe, is it Brad Pitt's character comes in? 
or Manny comes in. Anyway, oh no, we're following Manny the whole time. Once the dialogue starts, it all goes into earpieces. Now the earpieces, typically it's like, you know, four or five for the band members. Uh, this time we had 40 for the crowd, for the different dancers, because we had a, you know, choreography dance and extras had them so they could bob along to the song. We also deployed a thumper, which is a 20 inch bass speaker that plays the beat at a low enough frequency that we don't record it, but you can hear it. Uh, so in the room, you know, everybody can hear the beat, but it's not actually recordable on a microphone that we use on the actors. And then everybody gets radio mic'd. And then you have to remind people that while they're dancing, while the party's happening, and it's all in their earpiece for the music, the actors have to speak up as though this is a raging party. Because on set, even though there is some noise, you know, there's a real chicken, there's a real cow, you know, there's real things happening. But for the most part, it's a fairly quiet situation. You hear people walking and stepping and, and things like that. But nobody's screaming, nobody's hooting and hollering. But you want to hear that in the theater when you watch the movie. So we have to remind the actors, we remind the director because, you know, the director is, even though they're thinking about sound, they're not really thinking about sound. They're just trying to get 500 people on camera with the camera move and the actors moving at the exact, exact same point. And then the annoying sound mixer walks up to him and says, hey, by the way, how do you want this to sound in the theater? Because they're kind of whispering in their dialogue. We should have them try to speak up. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. And then they, you tell the actors, or I don't tell them, but the director tells them. <laughs> and then the next take, they either do it or they don't, because they're also working with 300 things they have to remember to not hit into the camera. But a scene like that is is complex because it is broken up into pieces, but you, everybody has storyboards. He has a previs made of exactly what he wants. And then the, the goal is to keep the two or 300 people entertained for the, the five days because it's the exact same thing, you know, for 10 hours straight, you know, here's the move for the next 10 hours and it's only 30 seconds or 12 seconds. And so you have to keep everybody entertained. So in between takes, we would basically DJ, you know, playing some, some, some classic hits for the, for the crowd so they could just stay entertained and energized as opposed to just passing out, waiting, waiting for us. I mean, I thought the scene came together. Great. Uh, the idea of filming over five days actually makes a lot of sense to me, given the challenges of production, like every time it turned and the background you barely see, but everything being choreographed so tightly, you need that much time to really get everything right, I would think. Well, also, and if you look at it, you know, that first swoop in shot, there's a bunch of things happening. There's a stunt guy that's falling off of a second story platform, but like his pants are falling and then a woman grabs it and pulls it like... These are things that, you know, are choreographed that if that doesn't work, then, you know, the shot is dead because you kind of want that chaos. Also, people are throwing the the streamers and it looks spectacular until it gets caught on the lens. You have to redo it because it's just sitting there on the camera lens. So it's like there's a ton of things that can happen that, that don't even really like register as you're watching it that can blow a shot like that. So you do have to give it the time. Otherwise, you have less of a spectacle because you're you're doing things less so typically what we would do knowing that look the first 10 takes of this are not gonna be the take let's dial it in let's do this okay oh it looks a little boring in this corner let's throw some more streamers let's do you know let's have these guys fill up this area so you as you're going you're also learning you know the crew is learning as we go and, and set deck and props and everybody's learning what, oh, I don't need that guy in the corner. You can't even see him. Let's put him up front. You know, those are those things that the AD department does really well in setting up 
you know, what all the background does and giving everybody a backstory and giving people the idea of what it is without, you know, having to have them read the script for a week. It all comes together because everybody participates. Now, Steve, you quipped about the annoying sound mixer coming up and uh, telling the director what's going to work or yeah. not work. Take us inside the movie to the scene where they're doing talkies for the first time. And in fact, that very annoying production sound mixer is up in right. a booth and is a huge dramatic element inside the movie, that scene. I'm thoughts about both the making of it and just what it was like for you. Like, what's your take on the whole business? I mean, it's kind of fun. Uh, the backstory of that character, his name is Lloyd Morrow, which is Steve Morrow's, you know, great grandfather. <laughs> and uh, that was literally Carson is the actor who played him. It was his first day ever on a set. So imagine that, you know, coming toe to toe with Margot Robbie. <laughs> it was funny because Damien said, you know, I wrote this um, thinking about you, but, uh, but but that's not the right word because this guy's annoying as shit and you're not. And so sorry, but like, <laughs> you know, I gave him your last name, but it's a, don't take offense. I was like, I don't care. It's, it's hysterical. The thing is funny. It, you know, production sound is, I'll give you the, the best thing that I can ever say is that like, if there's a hundred crew members, there's two or three for sound and there's 98, 97 for the picture. Everybody else is for the picture. Even PAs who tell people not to, you know, to be quiet and not to move. It's so that they don't walk in the background. You know, it's like there's certain things. So as a production sound mixer, I have to understand that it's not about sound. It's about making the movie and you never want them to have to fix your work in post, but they can fix your work in post. There's certain things they can't fix or, you know, affordably fix. So I always try to stay out of sight, out of mind. But when I go to a director with with something that I feel is necessary, since I hadn't been bugging them every day about every little thing that doesn't really matter to them, the impact of me suggesting something is much higher because I haven't said anything in four weeks. And all of a sudden I'm saying, hey, I think we need something here. And they go, okay, what is it? That to me is the smarter way to play being on set as a production mixer, because if you complain about every little thing, which there's, you know, on the sound side of it, there's a billion things to complain about. Like, for example, in, in Babylon, there's a scene where, you know, Margot Robbie's character is trying to play higher end. And this is when uh, Manny is getting his name on the door. And if you look, you know, it's like this outdoor garden set that's on stage and on the ground is uh, gravel. Well, it's like, does it really have to be gravel? Like they're, they're walking and talking on gravel on a soundstage. That's the worst case scenario for sound is just walk and talk on gravel that is just put on top of a wood floor, you know, and you look at it and you go, how bad is this going to be? How much do I need to complain? Those are the things you kind of, you weigh because you know, like, Hey, this gravel is terrible. We're going to have to sweep it all up. That's going to be like four guys for five minutes moving it. And is it going to affect it? Or, oh, it, we're wide enough, we see it, so now it has to be there. And you sit there and you go, they could, I guess they could have done something better for us, but they didn't. But then at the end of the day, we record the scene and it sounds totally fine. You know, so it's like those things you panic about and then you look at it and you're like, yeah, that was fine. No problem at all. Like, there it is, you know, your worst nightmare. And then you do the scene, you go, oh, it wasn't so bad. You know, so it's like, how much of a panic do you, do you give? So I think industry overall is that for me it's like i feel like i've had a successful career because i i make the moments where i feel like it's important i make them known but the little things that like come and go every day it's like you know a giant airplane is ripping through the scene obviously the director can hear it obviously all the actors can hear it and when he says cut 
cop moving on you know you used to say hey you know we had an airplane there no it's fine okay and then that's it you don't take it personally you just yeah okay moving on because there's other things that they they may have like three takes earlier and they were just trying to give it a shot and they finally were like eh, screw it i'm over it and then moving on so it's you know it's one of those things not to take personally because sound is very underlooked on set because you're two percent or three percent of the movie making at that moment sound is a big thing in post most opposed to sound but and those guys appreciate you but they're yeah, not on those set. guys appreciate what you do <laughs> and those guys also sometimes don't know what you do either they don't understand you know sometimes you're just like you know like ford versus ferrari was one of those things where they were like yeah it was really noisy those cars are noisy i'm like uh-huh. <laughs> i mean they're going past the pit row at 60 miles an hour 70 or 100 miles an hour you know stunt guys are driving the cars 100 miles an hour past pit row while we're doing dialogue but it's a race car movie and if they're going you know if they're pushing them through frame then what you know it's like only so much you can do well on babylon what other scenes might have been challenges for you as sound that maybe we wouldn't have guessed just from the watching there's a scene where manny's basically going through you know looking for nelly and he goes through a sound stage where they're setting up a bank vault heist and he shoots a machine gun and he goes around and he ends up coming into the other set where uh, Javon's character is playing with the, the jazz band and the one producer's like, hey, you know, this isn't going to work in middle America. He looks like he's white playing with an all black band. You need to darken him up. And then he has to go and tell him to, to put the, um, the basically shoe polish on him or the burnt, burnt cork, which was a tough scene. But the scene leading up to it, the big oneer, uh, sound stages are built like a giant Faraday cage. They're built to eliminate RF from the outside coming through the stage. So we're going from exterior, you know, Paramount lot into a sound stage, all the way from one end to the other, going out the back door, past all the equipment, you know, in between stages, going back into a new sound stage going around where the then the um, Javon's band has to be cued to play back, you know, what they're hearing in their ears. And it all circles around to the to the two shot of the two producers talking. And that was hard because just the distance, you know, you don't have great RF going through different sound stages because, you know, if you look at a studio lot, all stages are next to each other. And how do all the sound people work on top of each other? Most of the time we avoid each other's frequencies, but it's also because once you're on a stage, that signal doesn't go anywhere. And so to cover two stages at once and a big walk and talk with earwigs going and, you know, playback in the movie, it looks like nothing. It looks like two people talking and walking through. And But that was like a big challenge where it's like, we're definitely going to have a moment where you won't hear them if he talks at this moment. But he never talked at that moment. So when it dropped out, it was fine. You had another mic you could go to for ambient. So it didn't just sound like a mute. And then it came back in the signal when you came close enough, you know, so it was like one of those things where you just, you're threading the needle and then you watch the movie and then there's edits and you're like, Oh, it's not even a wonder anymore. <laughs> you know, so all that work is like, could have just been done in a couple shots for everybody involved, but that's okay. Cause you know, it's a movie edit it down. Yeah. And so there is a lot of planning that goes in that sometimes to your point, doesn't survive every aspect of it when it ends up in the edit room for whatever reason. And this was a long movie. In the end, I'm yeah. sure what you shot was more than the three hours plus we saw on screen. Yeah, I mean, I think there honestly, there could have been a four hour cut fairly easily because there are definitely scenes that are cut down, you know, to drastically. I, I understand how audiences would, you know, shift in their seats after two and a half, three hours. 
that's any movie, you know, but I think going through pandemic in the, the film world, I think we all started watching these limited series TV shows of eight episodes of an hour each. And then all of a sudden, you know, two years later, we're making three hour movies again. I don't know if they correlate, but to me, it's like, yeah, it's just, you want to tell a story and you want to take your time with it, but you still want to put it in a theater. So, you know, there's a certain element of that. I think. I enjoyed this film and I enjoyed seeing it in the theater, but it didn't get the reception. I think that, well, certainly that I think Damien was expecting or that people expected. I'm curious from the production side, when you're working on something this massive, uh, he's got an excellent track record with his other films, but then it just doesn't seem to quite latch on. It's not getting the Oscar nominations that we thought it would. Uh, audiences aren't taking it to it as well. And I'm just, I'm curious a little bit about what that's like as crew, or are you able to just move on and say, not everything can be predicted on something like this? No, I mean, look, as a crew, we're devastated when, I mean, I am. Look, I'll give you an example. Like, we, you work on this movie and you go, oh, this is going to be good. Like, this is like a massive undertaking and look we have 1200 people you know in a crowd and we have all these sunset and sunrise shots you know the cinematography is insanely good and like you know sounds great and it's an interesting story and so you know you put it out there you get the first reviews back and you you start going oh yeah shit you know like people aren't digging it like yeah reviewers are reviewers you know but you know you start seeing those first few they come out and they're not great. And it's like, oof, boy, you know, cause like a guy like Damien, the, the, you know, everybody likes an underdog. Everybody likes a comeback, but if you have yet to fail and you've done three movies in a row that are just amazing films and, you know, get all these awards and acclimate, there's a certain point where people just want to tear you down. I don't know that that's what this was, but you can definitely go, well, you know, if there was any weakness in the armor, you know, that's what they were going for. And also like, you know, going up against Avatar on Christmas Day is tough, you know, family film, you know, which was, you know, a decade in the making versus a movie that, you know, was a hard R, you know, kind of film um, that you couldn't have the whole family go to. But it wasn't for lack of trying. But yeah, I mean, as a crew, uh, you know, you're you're bothered by it because you want people to watch the movies that you make that you have a passion for. But, you know, we also make movies that we know are terrible while we're making them we go it doesn't matter if anybody cares about this you know so it's like it's like a, it's a back and forth but on a movie like this where you do you you put so much energy into it and you put so much of your life into it you're working you know 17 18 hours a day some of the crew's falling asleep going home it, it one guy ended up in the hospital it's like these are the things everybody was fine at the end of the day everybody's okay now but at the end of the day you're just like what are we suffering for if nobody wants to even see this thing you know so it's like that's where it hurts a little bit, but you can't blame people for it. You pick your poison. I mean, anytime you make a movie about Hollywood, like the movie producers, I don't know how well it did. I love that movie, but at the end of the day, it's like an inside joke. So is that what this is? And, or is it more of less like people weren't in the mood to see a three and a half hour movie, but now that it's on video, will they start seeing it and then realize, Oh, that was actually pretty good. Like cult classic, you know, it'll gain traction over the years. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't spend that much time reading the reviews myself, but I did notice on this one sort of a split between reviewers who assumed that the movie was glamorizing the 1920s versus reviewers who thought, no, he's critiquing the 1920s and seeing it through a different lens. I mean, it's not a fight club level switch, but I think that it changes somewhat how people reacted to it. And I'm curious 
on the inside and what if Damien ever made his intentions known on set or amongst you guys on crew? If La La Land was the love letter to Hollywood, this this would have been like, you know, the 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 reality check of Hollywood and where we came from. And, you know, people's dreams don't always it's not always magic, you know, it's like it is devastating. And I think that it's something that everybody can relate to. And but, you know, yeah, I I, I would disagree with some of the, the critics that say they were just trying to glamorize how, how messed up the era was. And it's like, no, I'm trying to show the reality of it. But in a humorous way, because, you know, how heavy do you want the audience to feel? Do you want them to come out feeling devastated? And I think, you know, some of them did and some of them didn't. But, yeah, you want to still entertain. I mean, it's interesting how much is missing from the movie, but uh, maybe there's some some DVD extras or something. But, yeah. Well, we'll watch for those. And certainly, if folks, if you did miss it the first time around, is on Paramount Plus now. You can find it streaming elsewhere as well. And, uh, yeah, I encourage folks to, to go check that out. Uh, Steve, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap here. So great having you on the show. Uh, so good to be here. And, and yeah, on, on a down note, <laughs> don't worry. The crew is fine. We're all making movies still. We're all having a good time doing it. And uh, if you don't like it, don't feel bad. It's okay because we're making all different types of movies for all different types of people. Even I could say something similar about the podcast. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. Let us know what you think. You'll find my contact info at our website below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all our social media. So check that out. Steve, where are we going to see your work next? Let's see. I have um, The Color Purple is coming out, I believe, Christmas Day 2023 this year. And Maestro, which is a Leonard Bernstein biopic. Color Purple is a musical. Uh, Leonard Bernstein biopic about uh, Leonard Bernstein is Maestro. I feel like that comes out this year with Netflix, although I don't know that they've had a release date. And then um, we just wrapped up uh, Joker 2 which will come out November 2024. So it's, it's a while, and then we're gearing up to do a Clint Eastwood movie. I, I believe his last, but I'm not sure. Oh, wow. Okay, well, we'll uh, I'll look for more information on that in the trades. Yeah, jury number two. Juror number two is what okay. it's called. Yep. All right. All right. Well, and uh, yeah, it sounds like you're going to be busy come awards season again. You never know. <laughs> Fingers crossed, my friend. Uh, my closing credits. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all our listeners, I appreciate it. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.